0: This is the Family-Friendly Workplace Podcast, produced by Women's Agenda. We know that flexibility is key for employers that want to be more family-friendly. But while flexibility might be often available to staff... The ability for staff to access it in a way that they actually need can often come down to the decisions made by team leaders or managers. Or it might come down to the specific culture that staff experience within their own team. At the global healthcare company Novartis, flexible work practices were available well before the pandemic. But the company has more recently moved to formalise that flexibility via a program enabling team members to choose their own working arrangements. They've also recently revamped their paid parental leave. They've taken the 2023 Equal Pay Pledge. They've addressed recruitment processes to ensure at least 50% of candidates are female. And they've introduced wellness days, supporting staff to catch up on the healthcare checks they may have missed during COVID or may have simply missed an account of being so busy. My name is Angela Priestley and this is the Family Friendly Workplaces podcast, an initiative between Parents at Work and UNICEF Australia that's produced by Women's Agenda. My guest today is Sue Whips, the country head of people and organisation for Nevada, Australia, and New Zealand, which became an accredited family friendly workplaces employer almost a year ago. Sue herself is a huge advocate for flexibility, and she shares here how flexibility has helped support her management and leadership career, including how she was able to take on one of her first managerial appointments in a flexible and part time capacity and that was 20 years ago, so she was well ahead of her game in terms of flexibility, and she's been hugely passionate about it ever since. Thank you for listening.
1: Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's been a difficult time trying to set this conversation up I think it's a sign of the times when we think about all the things that I believe got in the way from heavy rain and flooding in my house at least but also to various bouts of COVID along the way so thank you for making the time. Pleasure. Can I start by asking about your own leadership career which we know is uh, so important for our readers and our listeners to learn and hear about Can you share a little bit more about how you have made your own career family friendly, how you've worked around your own family and your own responsibilities and everything that makes you you and makes your family the family that you have? What along the way has enabled you to achieve that and achieve any kind of balance if you have been able to get balance at all?
2: Yeah, thank you for the chance to share my story a little bit, I guess. And look, I think from my point of view, I've been working for probably around gosh, 30 years and in leadership roles for probably around 22 of those years. And when I reflect on what's helped or what I've done personally, I'd start with saying I worked prior to Novartis with an organisation that probably back when I started and family-friendly workplaces wasn't really even talked about, they were very flexible around part-time opportunity for women in the workplace. So I had the chance to start some leadership or managerial roles in a part-time capacity, and that certainly provided me initially with some flexibility around doing managerial roles whilst I had young children. I think in my early part of of management and leadership, I had built quite a strong family support network with my husband, who's credibly, supportive and you know very much an equal partnership in building our family and and running our household but I had an extended network as well I'm one of four girls in my family I've got two brothers but uh, I have sisters that were amazing in providing additional support and help with my uh, my children as was my mother at the time so I had a beautiful support network that was was broader than just myself Um, I had flexibility from the company in terms of some part-time work. What was a game changer, I think, for me, when these senior leadership roles started to emerge, is I had the courage to ask, would they consider me for a more senior role on a part-time basis, which had never been done before in my prior company. And I had a very um, forward-thinking managing director, and the role was going to be the head of human resources and report to her it was a female And she was very open to exploring me doing that part-time. So I often say to people, don't be afraid to ask because, you know, sometimes we limit our own thinking that, oh, they'd never consider that, or they'd never consider me doing it part-time or in a job share. But my reality was I had an organisation very open to that, so that really played a key role in me stepping into senior leadership. It is with part time work. I mean, it
1: is, we hear this a lot from our readers, is that our readers can often feel like their careers are parked while they are doing that part-time work. But it sounds like, and maybe it was because you'd started that way from the outset in terms of going into that leadership position. I imagine you may have been the first person in that leadership line to work part-time potentially across some of these roles, um, but it certainly sounds like you didn't necessarily feel parked along the way. What would you say has supported you in able
2: to move forward while while still working part-time? I do think you're right about the mindset. I didn't show up any differently. My level of commitment wasn't any different, and I think having an organisation that is curious and open to exploring part-time and actually flexibility, but it, which has now become so much more at the forefront, Yeah. but I think your own limiting beliefs are one element. In my time early on, I needed a support network outside of the workplace to manage what I would call the logistics of your life. I think these days, the support networks like you know, family-friendly workplaces, parents at work, there's actually a much broader support network within companies now than there ever used to be. So I think that is, is incredibly powerful support network for employees that uh, are looking at careers that are wanting to do that with a, a balance around their family responsibilities. And, but, you know, for me, it was the combination of both a broader support network outside of work but having key supporters inside as well. Yep. Okay. So how long have you been at Novartis for now? I'm coming up to four years, actually. Next month, it will be four years with Novartis. And what led you to
1: make that move across? And I guess what what did you find? Because I want to get into how you became
2: a family friendly workplace. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually had been working with my husband actually in a small business for the seven years prior to coming back to Novartis, and uh, that gave me incredible flexibility around juggling work and family, and and really huge flexibility to come and go to help support the family needs. Mm. We were at a point in time where we were moving away from our own business and I was approached to be advised that the role was available at Novartis and because I had a large extensive background in pharmaceutical and healthcare, I was asked would I be interested in being considered for the role and, you know, I I did my research around the culture, around the philosophy of the organisation and uh, was excited about what I was reading and hearing and uh, was lucky enough to get the role.
1: Okay, so before we get into that as well, can I ask about that experience from the small business and moving back into a large employer? And that's, again, what we find is an experience so familiar to a lot of our readers as well. A lot of our readers feel concerned that they won't be able to make it, like get back into that corporate sector back into a bigger workplace obviously it's quite different working in a small business depending on what the business is but did you ever feel that it'll be difficult to transition back or
2: did you find a way to stay
1: connected to the industry?
2: Yeah it's a great question uh look i probably you know being very honest probably had a little bit of self-doubt as you know would uh the the gap of about six seven years of of, uh working in a full-time corporate role uh would I be up to the challenge? I spent a lot of time doing research and, and getting back up to speed on best practice in my, my area. There's so much that is accessible nowadays on the internet. Uh, so I really mm. felt up to speed. Uh, I have a, a wide network also, a professional network that I obviously had kept in touch with throughout my career journey. And uh, so I, I did feel I still had good connections around the industry and around what was sort of currently taking place within a corporate setting. So that also helped, I guess, in my lead up to going back into the corporate world.
1: And going back, did you find it was much different? I mean, I guess in terms of flexibility, things would have shifted quite a bit in that seven years.
2: Oh, yeah. And it was look interesting for me in terms of when I, when I was taking on my senior roles before I'd be sitting down with my husband having the conversation about how will we make this work. I sat down with actually my now children that are 18 and 21 talking about how are we going to make this work. Uh, so having that conversation with them was was interesting uh, at the outset. But yes, flexibility. I think Nevada's when I started, very much had a philosophy even before we broadened out into some more formal policies of really a flexible work environment where totally open plan, no set seating, no offices, all about it felt more like a university campus where... People come and go and leverage the building as needed to do the work that had to be done, but none of that sort of clock watching or you've got to be in at 8.30 and you don't leave the building till 5, none of that at all in this culture, all about flexibility to get the job done, that respecting individuals that, you know, even back before COVID and hybrid working, recognising sometimes people are better to be doing certain things at home than physically being at the workplace.
1: Yeah, and so this is pre-pandemic, so how did that, the transition then to work from home would have been a little more straightforward for the organisation, I imagine, having already had that culture there?
2: Yeah, and I mean, like everybody, I I think we had to accelerate incredibly um, quickly from going from people occasionally, working from home, and when you worked from home, it was very much like an admin day, you weren't interacting with others in the office, you were doing your your detailed paperwork or writing up a proposal, of course, post-COVID, it became hybrid working where we needed to connect online. And so we Nevada's already had a flexible mindset, but we really then had the opportunity to accelerate and leverage technology to start to create hybrid team meetings, to, to leverage technology to engage internally but externally as well. So we were lucky from that point of view. It was an easier transition I think, for Nevada's than perhaps other companies.
1: So Nevada's became a family-friendly workplace. I mean, it must have been in the past year. They're coming up to a year since family-friendly workplaces launched. So can I ask about that, not so much about the accreditation process, but to learn a little bit more about some of the key policy areas that really support Nevada's in becoming that family-friendly workplace? What are some ones that you'd really highlight and pull out and want to share as really worthwhile and that have had a really great reaction from staff? Yeah,
2: look, I think the parental leave policy that Nevada's developed, and it's a global policy, it was launched by our global CEO, which shows the level of commitment and profile and, and support of family friendly workplaces, you know, 14 weeks paid leave, no qualifying period available to all regardless of gender, launching it globally for all countries around the world was such a significant and exciting time at Novartis. And with that, starting to look at the infrastructure around that in terms of, you know, uh, coaching for parents in terms of the pre and the post period of time going off on parental leave. I think that that as a platform for our accreditation was incredibly powerful and something we're really proud of. Yeah, and I mean,
1: because we talk about organisations doing that in Australia, but then I just think to officers, say, in the United States, where paid parental leave is a, a long way behind, And but this was a global initiative, so it went everywhere. So right. in some countries,
2: this would have been a huge leap. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that was the first pillar that I think we, we we, really anchored on. The other piece that is, I think, it is best practice from from my perspective is, Nevadas launched a more formal approach to this flexible working environment and practices called choice with responsibility. Now, what I love about that is, you know, early in my career, people talked about work-life balance, but I don't know about you, but finding a balance in work and life, you know, it's such a crazy time we live in. For me, it always has been about choice. You need to give people choices. And so Nevadas's approach around launching this beautiful program called Choice with Responsibility has been a really empowering approach to say to associates, you choose when and where you work, you need to go consult and align with your team and then engage your manager to to help endorse that and bring it to life. And that really formalized this flexibility for people that you can choose to, to work from home. You can choose to go and, and spend time at your child's school if there's something there on that you want to go and see. It's your choice. And if you then want to make up those hours later in the day, earlier on, you've got the choice to be flexible and to work and integrate your work and life responsibilities and, and bring your whole self to work. I think that's a key thing for us because your whole self uh is is needed in both work and home setting. So the wellness
1: day scheme as well which looks particularly interesting and obviously makes sense for um, the company in the health in the healthcare space also but uh, what is that all about so especially in uh, I mean I know that it's looking at health checkups I believe but also at this time when so many of us have missed health checkups over the past couple of years and might be scrambling to try and make up for it and also at a time when it's actually really hard to get certain appointments, certain specialist appointments because they're still in this backlog and catch-up phase. So talk me through where Wellness Day came about and how staff are using it.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Look, this is a a wonderful initiative, I think, around recognising during the pandemic what healthcare companies saw and We heard back from our customers in terms of physicians, you know, the early days of pandemic, people stopped going and doing their regular checkups, and people stopped attending uh, key appointments that were needed, you know, for their health and well-being. So as, in fact, you know, we sit between the number one, number two uh, pharmaceutical company here in Australia, we felt it was such an opportunity for us to be a role model to say, You know, these checks are important across a range of therapeutic areas, not just areas that Nevadas might play in. And so to role model the way in that, we said, why don't we start with encouraging our associates and giving them access to a health and wellbeing day that they can leverage to go and do those checks, take the time to invest in their their health and wellbeing, and then role model that, promote it through our LinkedIn and other platforms, and encourage other organisations uh, to join with us and also offer that to their associates and to start to build this momentum again around people taking care of their health and, you know, leveraging this day for their health and well-being. Great, yeah. Can I ask, so the
1: 2023 Equal Pay Pledge... Can we talk about that now? So, Equal Pay at Novartis. What is this journey? Where did it start? And I've had a look at the website, and it's quite clear um, what's going through in terms of trying to achieving that equal pay. And it seems that transparency is critical in the sense of continuing to do those pay audits and to look at understanding the pay gap but can we talk about that as well I see that as critical to family-friendly workplaces I see it as critical to women's workforce participation especially.
2: Yeah I think signing up to this international um, commitment around equal pay for equal work I think we talk about we want to build this diverse and inclusive workplace but we know there are certain elements that Uh, hold people back and, and reduce your ability to create that diversity and create that inclusive environment. So the EPIC pledge and the target around 2023 was really important I guess in again it's that role modeling of behavior isn't it about what's important how do you create a diverse and inclusive environment if you've got these discrepancies in terms of how you're paying people from a different gender background how are you ensuring you end up with you know, a robust, diverse group of leaders in your business. So for us, there sort of were the the four elements to that. One was around absolutely really creating an environment where we we're transparent and publish for associates to see what the internal position of their pay is and also now what their external position is against benchmark data. So it creates that transparency for associates to have confidence that we're publishing where they sit. The second was really starting to remove the bias in, you know, traditionally looking at someone's prior salary to make an offer for a future salary. We're saying, actually, what's the point of that? For women often, they're already at a disadvantage if they haven't been paid, you know, similar to their male counterparts historically, you're then going to keep perpetuating the problem. So really removing the use of historical data so you're getting, again, people are being paid for the job that they're going into. Um, another key thing for us was around often in getting a 50-50 short list of candidates for roles you know often it's hard to find those female leaders they either for whatever reason don't put their hand up or they're not maybe perhaps as proactive in, in managing their career so we, we went with this aspiration of we want 50-50 male-female shortlist at the shortlist stage for our key managerial roles so that we've got, you know, the best person is appointed off an equal shortlist of male-female and um, that's been quite powerful for us in terms of really shifting the, the number of, uh, globally, the number of uh, male-female um, leaders in, um, in key roles across the business.
1: Yeah, sure. I imagine you need to put some pressure on the recruiters as well, because often that's where it falls short. They don't necessarily put the time in to get that diverse mix of people shortlisted. And so that is often... A huge part of it is to to start
2: with those recruiters and and apply the pressure there. Yeah, correct. You, that's right. You have to sometimes fish in some different ponds, uh, and you're right. It, sometimes it might mean it takes a bit longer, or you have to search the the put your net out a bit wider um, to achieve that uh, to achieve that result. Um, and then the other thing we've really built in a, a pretty sophisticated process of then analyzing pay across uh, the enterprise every sort of two years, doing a uh, an, an equity pay study just to check if there are discrepancies and to look at why. And if there's no valid reason, be it experience, be it um, seniority, if it's if there's nothing that validates why there is a difference, then going and uh, investigating further and doing something about it. And is Novartis on track to achieve the targets for 2023? Yeah, yeah, we're actually uh, in good shape. I mean, uh, uh, in terms of our managerial roles, we're already at 51% Female, forty nine percent male across our manage manager pool. So that's quite exciting. We've already introduced the process around not looking at historical pay data to form office for the future. We've just been through a pay equity study actually to address any potential gaps. So no, we're in we're in good shape. Great. Okay. So I guess the final question I wanted to ask
1: was to ask what you see as some of the challenges facing, and you can take this in two parts, challenges facing organisations of a similar size to Nevada, so challenges facing similar organisations in other industries when it comes to being family friendly. And then the second part would be to ask, you know, take what you've learned and in your career and also in the organisation where you are now. but. What do you think are some of the first th- key things that can be done to to help when it comes to creating family-friendly workplaces in um, perhaps in industries or organisations
2: of a size where people might think it's just not possible? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so for the first part of the question, look, I think the challenge is for, for any company is, you know, where to prioritise because there's so much opportunity, there's so much that can be done and, you know, the, it's a bit... You, you, Change your level of awareness, and you know the the family friendly workplaces, the accreditation. It opens your eyes to what best practices across the full spectrum of family friendly. And we've got so many opportunities still at, at locally. So it's it's about prioritization. I think that's a key, and it's about really listening and understanding the needs of your associates because what might be important for our associate base could be very different for someone in a different industry or. In a smaller organization, so you've got to really tailor uh, and customize to the need of, of your associate or employee base. I think, and then prioritize for impact because you can't you can't change everything at once, and it's not realistic to to try. Really, you've got to be um, you know targeted in in what you address and, and in what time frame. So that's sort of two things. I think that uh, our challenge is you know, is around that prioritisation. And with large organisations, it's balancing, you know, you, you can do the broad brush policy changes, which are amazing. It's making sure you don't lose sight of the the, the that high touch, uh, the detail for an individual. And, you know, one of the ways we're trying to address that is to set up these employee resource groups where associates that have a passion around a particular area um, of our diversity and inclusion agenda, you know, put their hand up and get involved in being a resource group that can help create that network and that, you know, that internal support framework that we talked about earlier uh, to help people on the journey. And and I think for any company, small or large, getting employees to volunteer to get involved and, and help lead a particular area that they're passionate about, they've got personal experience, uh, is a really effective and impactful way uh, to approach uh, your strategy uh, and program development. Um, yeah, I yeah, think, right. uh, and then those
1: groups also, I think like the storytelling element as well is if you get people together who are united by a passion for a certain smaller area, they're more likely to share the stories as to why that's essential and important, maybe their own personal stories as well. And that's I always feel like that is the key to getting um, more people on board and to spreading the issue more widely is that people can see how it
2: directly impacts people. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think these ambassadors, you know, and, and people, you're spot on. They then share their story and, you know, they're speaking from their heart. So, it, it you know, it's so compelling and inspiring to others. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do, you know, more of that in terms of, of having having associates talk to associates even as part of town halls um, or you know uh, just general uh, discussions and again the online for you know forums we have now make that so much easier to get the message out
1: excellent yes um, well thank you so much for joining me today Sue. I'm glad we finally got to make it work and I think that all the things that have happened over the past few months preventing us from actually having this uh, meeting appointment and doing this and it's, and it's a virtual call so it shouldn't be absolutely impossible but I think that all the things that have gotten in the way are basically reflecting so much of family life at work at the moment. So <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, love the conversation.
0: The Family-Friendly Workplaces podcast is an initiative supporting the new national work and family standards for workplaces, which informs employers of the minimum and best practice policies they can invest in to create a great family-friendly workplace culture. You can learn more at familyfriendlyworkplaces.com.